Welcome to my podcast, The Cross in the Desert. I'm your host, Randy L. Noble, and I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life today to join me on my podcast. One of the great commands of Scripture for the individual Christian is to give reasons for the hope that lies within us. That involves defending our faith, giving reasons for why we believe what we believe and how it's made a difference in our life. There's a term for this, it's called apologetics, and it's found in a very important text of scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, the Bible admonishes us in a command, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, that is, worship him. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is the scripture that actually defines my life. I want to talk to the unbelieving world, to the non-Christian, and I want to engage them. I want to persuade them through evidences and reasons of why I believe what I believe as a Christian. There is so much opposition to the Christian message today from the secular culture to those that believe in evolution, to those that believe in some form of new age kind of religion that creates a God in their own image. They have all kinds of worldviews and philosophies today that would teach that there are many pathways to God. And so the importance of this podcast today is to equip us to give an answer, to be prepared to give good, reasonable, rational answers to the objections that the unbeliever has to the Christian faith, that we give the reason for the hope that lies within us, First Peter says. Now we do this not with arrogance and boasting and bragging, but we talk to the unbeliever with gentleness and respect. And we do it in a way that honors Christ as Lord. We're not there necessarily to win an argument. We're there to persuade the unbeliever's heart to believe the message of the gospel. Now, a great example of this in action and this is the basis of my message today, is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we see in the book of Acts, going into the marketplace among the Jewish non-believers and also going into the Areopagus, that is the meeting place for the Stoics and the philosophers of Greek philosophy. And Paul boldly went into that culture to proclaim Christ. Now, he did this in a very strategic way. To the Jew in the marketplace that did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, he would go to them face to face and share with them from the Old Testament scriptures how Jesus is the promised Messiah. He would debate with them, he would reason with them, and show them from the scriptures of his day. But now, 
he adopted a different tactic when he met with the Stoics and the philosophers of the Greeks of his day. I want to read to you Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. And what we're going to do is learn how Paul spoke to the pagan philosophers of his day and what that teaches us as Christians how to speak to them in our day. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was given over to idolatry, was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. And some said, quote, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took Paul, they brought him to the Areopagus, and they said, Look, we want to know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Boy, does that sound like the culture of our day. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed 
among whom also were Dionysus, the Arabicite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is a very powerful chapter. It's a great example of how we as the church can engage the pagan philosophers of our day with the boldness that Paul had, with his knowledge of their culture and history, and how he proceeded from this altar to an unknown God as a starting point. He used that to preach Christ to them. So what happened here at Mars Hill? What can we learn? Well, what is Mars Hill? First of all, it's the Roman name for a hill in Athens, in Athens, Greece. It's called the Hill of Ares, or Areopagus. Ares was the Greek god of war. And according to Greek mythology, this hill was the place where Ares stood trial before the other gods for the murder of Poseidon's son, Aleruthius. So Mars Hill It stands about 377 feet above sea level. It's not far from the Acropolis or the marketplace Agora. Mars Hill actually served as the meeting place for the Areopagus court. That's the highest court in Greece for civil, criminal, and religious matters. Even under Roman rule in the time of Paul, the New Testament, Mars Hill was this famous, important meeting place where the men of Athens discussed philosophy, religion, and law, and they spent dawn to dusk talking about all of this all day. Why is this so important? It's the location here, Mars Hill, of one of Paul's most important gospel presentations. He's there in Athens during his second missionary journey. He's provoked in his spirit by the idolatry of Athens, how the men of Athens have created a God in their own image, and he addresses this idolatry. He begins, though, by referring to their worship of an unknown God. There was this altar, and this is the religious idolatry that Baal wants to talk about. He used that altar to an unknown God as a starting point to proclaim to them the one true God and how they could be reconciled to this one true God. And Paul's sermon here is a classic presentation that begins where the listeners are. Paul left the comfort of the church, if you will, and went into the marketplace, went into the meeting place of the philosophers, and he listened to them, he talked with them. He didn't quote scripture to them necessarily like he did with the Greeks, or excuse me, the Jews in the marketplace. No, this was a whole different audience, a very secular, very uh, religious audience, but they had no connection to the Bible, to the Old Testament. So Paul, as you will notice here, quotes from one of their own poets. He shows these people at Mars Hill that he understands something of their culture and of their belief system. And he begins by showing how this altar to an unknown God, this religious idolatry, is false. But he uses that as a starting point to point to the God of creation. He is provoked in his spirit because Athens is given over to idols. And he starts reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, and he makes his way to Mars Hill. 
to the Gentile worshipers. And he's talking to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers, well, here's what they believe. They, they kind of had a deistic viewpoint of God. He's the creator. Okay, well, he's out there somewhere. But he has nothing to do with everyday life. Now, he exists. He's not really interested or involved with us, the Epicureans taught that that's really not what their idea of God was. There had to be a starting point uh, for the universe. So, okay, there's a God that exists. But the, the driving force behind the Epicurean philosophers was hedonism. They pursued a life of pleasure, of ungodliness. Now, on the other hand, the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day had the worldview that God was the world's soul. So they had kind of a, maybe a pantheistic idea that all is God. And the goal of the Stoic philosopher was to rise above this living in the world. And really, they were kind of unemotional. They didn't have an emotional response to either plain or pleasure. They were kind of the Dr. Spock, if you will, from Star Trek of Paul's day. Um, and so their worldview was completely removed from uh, the worldview of the Bible. Now, Paul was preaching before that about the resurrection, and the Stoics and the Epicureans want to know more about that. But he, he, he has a methodology here that we can learn from. He points out to them, you're really religious, but your religion is focused in the wrong direction. You've created a God in your image, and you're talking about this unknown God. I want to point you to the one true God. And he begins to expound on the sovereign God of the Old Testament who created all things and gives life and breath to all things. He goes on to these Stoic philosophers to explain it was God who created one individual, all men and nations, and even appointed the times and the boundaries of our dwelling, of their dwelling. He says that God is not far from each one of us because in him we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes from one of their philosophers that we are his offspring. And then he points to the fact that one day we will stand before the true sovereign Lord of the universe. And he is referring to Jesus whom God has raised from the dead. Now, at the conclusion, many in the idea in the audience scoffed at the idea of a crucified savior and a resurrection of that savior from the dead. Some of them scoffed at it. Others wanted to hear more about this. You see because that kind of teaching is foolishness to the Greeks. And Paul says, I care to know nothing among you to the Corinthians, he said, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So his message to the Corinthian believers was not one of philosophy, but one of truth. And he talked about how the Jews seek after knowledge and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, there were a few in the audience that believed the message that Paul gave and joined him. They followed him. They repented and believed the good news of the gospel. So this is what is going on here. What we can learn from this 
is the methodology that Paul used in talking to the unbelieving audience of his day. In obedience to 1 Peter 3.15, to be prepared always to give an answer for those that ask questions. They wanted to know about, what is this about Jesus? What is this about resurrection? And so Paul started from their idolatry, and he made his way through the one true God who is the creator of all things, and then the judge whom he raised from the dead will all stand before one day, meaning Jesus. So he had a methodology and an approach to them. He understood their culture, and he understood their, their history. So how can we learn from that? Well, today, we have our pagan philosophers. We have the New Agers who believe that God is some force in the universe, some impersonal force that we're all part of. Then we have the secularists that worship at the altar of scientism who reject anything religious or any teaching about God and the afterlife and say that everything is defined from a scientific worldview, that really it's all materialistic and on the day that we die, it's like turning off a life switch. We cease to exist. That's all there is. So the unknown God in our day, the altar of the unknown God in our day is the God of scientism. How would we approach that like the Apostle Paul? Well, we would talk to them because we have some understanding of their worldview. It's based on evolution. It's based on the idea that simple life came about by random chance, long processes. There was no creator involved. It just evolved through natural selection. How would we talk to them as Paul talked to the Stoics of his day? I think a good way of going to their altar to an unknown God is to talk to them about the marvelous DNA molecule, a recent scientific discovery of the information system in our body. And we would say to that evolutionist and creation and that secularist, look, when you think about the DNA, the building blocks of life in every cell in the human body, there is information in each individual cell that could fill a library. And that information points to an intelligent designer, an intelligent creator of our human body. We look at the protein information system, the RNA, the DNA in our body, and it points to not random chance, natural processes, but it points to an intelligent creator. And so this is one way We can learn from Acts chapter 17 of how we can proclaim the gospel to the evolutionists of our day. That is, the pagan philosophers of our day who reject the biblical worldview, who don't believe in absolute truth. So we have to find a way to talk to them. And I think that this is one good way we can show that this information in our cells always comes from intelligence. It doesn't come from random chance, luck, or natural selection. There has to be a creator. A book doesn't come from a print shop through an explosion, and you read the book with all of the information. It comes from some intelligent writer putting down his ideas on paper, and it's printed. So, that is one way we can talk, like the Apostle Paul did, to the philosophers of our day. 
the highly complex and ordered information in our cells, in our DNA, it comes from an intelligent designer. Evolution is just an excuse to say, I don't need a God in my life. I want to live the life I live according to my dictates, according to my way, according to my reason. I don't want to have to submit to some God. So really, evolution is an excuse not to believe. But still, to those that are seeking truth, we can give these kinds of answers, just like the Apostle Paul engaged his philosophers on the day that he talked to them at Mars Hill. I hope all of this has been helpful and instructive to you. The church has a responsibility to get out of their comfort zone and to go into the marketplace, to go into the place where the philosophers, the evolutionists, the secularists meet and engage them and talk to them from the heart and persuade them of the gospel through good evidences, through sound reasoning. And that's what we are called as a church to do. I want to say thank you so much for spending time with me today on my podcast, The Cross in the Desert. Have a great week. God bless you, and I will see you on the next Cross in the Desert.